You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. On today's episode, we'll be hearing the audio from Strengthening American Democracy Through Service, a recent luncheon event held by the Standing Committee featuring Avril Haynes, a former Deputy National Security Advisor and current member of the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service. Also appearing in this episode is Paul Leckis, the General Counsel and Chief Legal Officer of the National Commission. The two of them will discuss public and military service in the U.S., and the recent interim report from the commission, which is available online at their website, inspire2serve.gov. That's inspire, the number two, serve.gov. Thanks so much. um, It's actually, it's really lovely to get to see so many old friends, and uh, and it's nice to be out of government and get sleep and relax about these. I know as many others have been part of this as well. But I really um, thanks for taking time to come today and to listen to this and so on. I think um, you know first you should know that really Paul and also Aaron Schneider, who's here someplace, I think a public affairs officer. Um, are really some of the most remarkable people that I get to work with in the context of this commission and uh, and are both here and hopefully afterwards to the extent that there's an opportunity to ask questions, you get a chance to meet them as well in this context. And there are really, it's an extraordinary commission that I'm a part of. It's a bipartisan commission and uh, with a, a whole series of um, folks who work with us as staff and uh, and it's really been a great pleasure of mine to be a part of this public service commission. And I, second, I think, you know, Harvey gave you a little bit of uh, an introduction into what it is that the commission is doing, but why don't I just sort of state this um, more boldly? Thank you very much. I, I think, first, the statute establishing the commission was actually the NDAA in 2016. And it happened amid a debate over whether the Selective Service Registration requirement should be extended to women, particularly given that combat roles were made open to women in 2015. Um, And the commission, really, the mandate ended up, even though it was generated out of that debate, being much broader than that issue. And it's actually kind of an interesting uh, aspect of this. It's, we think, the first time in history that a commission's been asked to look holistically at military, national, and public service. And so we're looking at a sort of a comprehensive review, not only of the selective service system, but also at all of these different types of service, and looking at ways in which we can increase participation across the country to meet the needs of the nation. It took us a little bit of time to get set up, even though the law was in 2016. And basically, by 2018, we started going around the country, which is part of what the statute indicates we're supposed to be doing, talking to people to listen to different communities and their perspective on service. And and we talked to folks about their views on service, what are the barriers of service, what's the value and the impact of service in different parts of their community. What we found, frankly, was both very inspiring but also troubling. 
And I think some of this won't surprise you, but some of it might in the context of your own work and your experiences on service. I think um, we tried to capture a lot of this in the interim report, which is what Harvey mentioned that we just published in January of this year. And uh, and we really, I, I hope that all of you, if you haven't had a chance to look at it, do get a chance to take a look at it. It's on our website, www.inspire2serve.gov. And... Um, in any event, it's really inspiring, first of all, to see how many Americans across the country are actually reaching across divides, right, to unite for a common purpose, to help each other, help their communities, help the country. And that was an astonishing thing. We got to meet with a lot of organizations. We met with over 300 organizations across uh, the country um, in these different spaces, but you know, and a number of them were public service organizations and folks who were doing really innovative things to address what they perceived to be the main challenges in their community. But we also saw the tremendous positive impact that service could have, not just on the communities that they're serving, but on the people who are actually doing that service. And the the sort of individual stories that we heard were quite extraordinary in that context. People who uh, had overcome addiction, for example, and were contributing to public service in order to try to help others in their community that uh, to overcome addiction, and you know, just a whole series of of places like that. So we that was extraordinarily inspiring and uh, and honestly great fun to get around the country and see that and see people from different political perspectives, different income perspectives, you know, all kinds of things coming together in that space. But we also saw just that there's no widely held expectation of service in the United States at this stage. And in fact, you know, military, national, and public service is really the exception as opposed to the rule, in effect. And honestly, I think the commission, and this is really also a reflection in the statute and, uh, you know, what Senators McCain and Reed, I think, came together on in the context of the NDA and this commission and building it was that there really should be. There should be an expectation of service. And it, the question is, how do you build that expectation? How do you build that culture of service? And as we looked at this, what we found was there are some serious barriers to service. So there are a lot of folks, for example, that are interested in service but actually are prevented from serving for a variety of reasons. One key reason that came up over and over again is really sort of access and awareness of opportunities. So the awareness of opportunities is actually a critical issue. People don't necessarily hear when they're going through high school what are the different opportunities for service. They don't actually get enough information about how they could be serving in different ways and places. And then we found there's a whole piece about how many people are not eligible for service. It's over 70% of kids from, I think, 17 to 24 years old who are not eligible to serve, for example, in the military. And in that context, there are a lot of different reasons for why that's the case. You know, some of them may be entirely rational. We say those are things that you shouldn't be uh, eligible um, as a consequence of. But there are a lot of other things and a lot of questions about whether the eligibility required criteria is, in fact, the right criteria and whether or not we are setting up our kids in a way that allows them to be eligible, in effect, as a consequence of the criteria. Then there are folks who can't afford to do service. I mean, it's kind of remarkable when you look across it at some of the service opportunities like AmeriCorps, where AmeriCorps is, is uh, interesting in that it actually does provide a living stipend for service, but the living stipend is very close to the poverty line. And we talked to a number of folks 
who were serving in AmeriCorps but were using food stamps, for example. And that's kind of an incredible thing when you think about, you know, these are people who are actually contributing to the service of the nation, but they're not in position to be, uh, you know, compensated for it sufficiently to be able to live without food stamps. Like, that should not be the case, right? Um, and then we also learned about how, you know, and this also will not come as a surprise to this group particularly, I think, but how recruiting for public service, whether it's in the federal, or the state, or tribal areas, local governments, is really out of touch with the younger generation and not really pulling effectively in many scenarios. And that civil servants are portrayed as, you know, ineffective, that morale is not great, that that in many respects contributes to some of the challenges for recruiting in that space. That the hiring process, I know this won't come as a surprise to me in this room, is slow, it's frustrating, right? It's, it's not easy. And it doesn't sort of meet the needs of many managers is what we heard from folks who are in the civil service and whatnot. And, and then finally, I think a thing that came up a lot was civics education and the importance of civics education and whether we're investing enough as a country in our civics education. And, you know, one of the, the figures that came up uh, in the context of our uh, commission's work and people like Paul and others and Aaron who have been working on these issues is that, for example, um, the Department of Education committed almost $300 million in grants, right, basically for STEM programming in 2018 alone. Um, and that's separate and apart from what states have invested in that and what private sector folks have invested in that and so on. And that's a good thing in the sense that we're investing in STEM educational programming. But the federal government sponsored grant programs totaling less than $4 million for civics education in 2018. And I think that just gives you a sense of how we've established our priorities in a way in this area. And whether or not that's the right answer seems like a, a good question to be asking. And we looked at a number of states who are doing some pretty remarkable things in this space that are trying to be innovative. We identified a few in the context of the interim report like Florida that's done a sort of back in 2010, I think it was, the Sandra O'Connor Act and some other things. And it, it's there's clearly interest in, in going at this. There are a number of states that have passed laws to try to promote civics education, but I think it really doesn't necessarily um, meet the expectations and, and the desire, I think, that we're seeing for increasing investment in this area. And, um, and it's also challenging, I think, for states to be doing this on their own, in effect, that there does need to be some federal government support for pieces of this. So we tried to capture what we learned, basically, in going around the country in this interim report. And we also identified some of the proposals that were made to us that we're looking at with the hope that, frankly, this information can serve as a basis for a discussion um, with, with you. We want your feedback. There's opportunities for providing that feedback through the website, talking to me, talking to any of us. Um, we'd really love to get your thoughts on these issues. And you know, as we make our observations on this, we're also going around doing public hearings around country, but a lot of them will be in D.C. and trying to listen to folks who we see as experts in these areas, but also providing an opportunity for public comments and, and thinking on this. And we see the potential for service in this country. I mean, I think, you know, we said over 28% of millennials report volunteering in 2017. 
And we really saw that in the context of our public hearings, listening to the younger generation talk about their desire to do work. What we didn't see sometimes was a connection between a desire to do volunteer work and to help their communities and what they saw as sort of part of being uh, a citizen in the United States or, or their sort of connection to the country in a way. And I think that's something that we're trying to understand better in a, in a sense as we're trying to think about what can we do to develop this culture of service in the United States. And it's not just about the younger generation, although it is a lot about the younger generation. And we also recognize and saw just a tremendous number of seniors, basically, who after retirement want to continue to contribute to society and, um, and see just an enormous sort of resource there for help and, and mentorship that can be uh, given to the country through service opportunities in that context. So that was another piece of it. The other topic I just want to touch on is really on the selective service registration system. And I think, you know, one of the things that we found in talking to folks was how few people really understood the system. Some people don't even realize that they're subject to it. Most men, you know, sort of end up getting registered automatically through applying for a driver's license, for example, and in doing other things in relation to federal loans and whatnot. And, um, and so this was something that I think there's an opportunity for kind of you know, an education around, but there was also the question raised as to whether or not there's a way to really, um, to make that more of a momentous moment when you actually end up registering and to, to see that as a point at which you are coming of age and you have an opportunity to serve the country in a variety of different ways, um, obviously military being one piece of it. And um, and so that was something that we discussed a lot. But I think the, you know, the other piece of it, obviously, is, is the part of it that's been more in the news and was really at the root of the development of the commission, in a sense, which is this question of whether or not women should also be required to register if we continue to have a selective service. And, um, and that's been a very interesting uh, issue. I think I, in the... Um, Folks may know this already, but you know, in 1973, I think it was, actually the uh, the draft was terminated, and so was the selective or the registration system at the time. And then in 1980, Carter actually uh, reinstated, you know, and Congress reinstated through the Military Service uh, Act, essentially uh, a new registration requirement, the Military Selective Service Act, right? And basically. Require, it authorizes, even though Carter, I think, requested to have both men and women register, what the act that ultimately was passed authorizes, essentially, um, uh, you know, the requirement that men register and not women for possible conscription. And the Supreme Court took a case in 1981, you guys are probably familiar with it, and basically said, actually, you know, uh, there was a, a Fifth Amendment claim in that context, and the court said we actually find that uh, that it's constitutional as it currently states. Basically, termination was that the draft was principally for raising combat troops. The court sort of refers to con congressional discussion and so on. And because women were at that time excluded from combat service, men and women were similarly situated, and therefore you could have this distinction. Rehnquist, I think, you know, put the opinion down, and, and I believe Marshall and Brennan and White uh, dissented in that context. And, you know, with the announcement that combat 
jobs are now open to women, there's obviously been a fair amount of churn. And there are a couple of cases that are going through the system. One of them uh, you might have seen in Texas last month stating that an OML registration system is, in fact, unconstitutional now. It's a consequence of, you know, in large part, this question of women actually having access to combat jobs and no longer being, uh, you know, sort of distinguished in that respect. And, um, and then there's another case uh, making its way through the system in New Jersey in the district court as well. And I think recently they've denied the government's motion to dismiss in that circumstance as well. But look, we have a whole series of public hearings that are coming up, and a few of them were actually devoting to this issue, four of them, I believe. And, um, and we would love you know, to sort of get perspectives on this as we're going through it. But I think most of all, it's really been... Um, an extraordinary opportunity to think about so many of the reasons that uh, that I myself went into service, that other people in this country are going into service, and um, and to see what it is that binds us together in a sense as a society, and whether or not we can promote that in a way that actually unites some of the divisions that I see today, and um, and really to, to sort of lean in, making our community stronger. You know, I believe it will make our nation safer and ultimately, I think, create a better civic society, in a sense, um, as a consequence of creating what I hope will be ultimately a culture of service in the United States. But, um, but I, I will not, I mean, I think one of the, the questions, for example, that we get a lot of uh, space on is this question of mandatory service versus non-mandatory service in that sense. Is that how you create, essentially, that expectation? And that may be something that people have views on as well as uh, women registering and any other aspects of what I might be saying. But I would love to get questions on this, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be here today, because I think it's one of the things that we really, I hope, you know, the folks in this room, I can't think of a better room to invest in and to think through and to try to essentially design what public service can look like for the future. And um, and that's what I'd love to see and spend time on in the next time that we have. So, But Paul should talk because he's the general counsel of this commission and he knows far more about it than I do. And it would be lovely just to hear from him, please. Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming today. I know you're not here to see me, so I won't take up too much time, but Avril did ask me to say a couple of words about what brought me to the commission, and I think that, you know, particularly for some of some of the room who may be exploring careers now or in the future, uh, coming to a commission like this is a very interesting opportunity. Uh, I was driven to the, to the commission because of the mission itself. Um, I'm, I'm very passionate about these issues. I think um, if we can come together and find bi bipartisan solutions to bring together people of this country to try to serve the public good, I think that would do enormous good uh, for all of us and for the nation as a whole. Um, with respect to the kind of work you do that I do, uh, what is, is particularly attractive is the variety. Um, we came on board in 2017 and essentially had to build a federal agency from scratch. Um, the commission is a unique body. It is part of the executive branch. It is an independent agency, and it has a limited lifespan. Uh, so this commission will be in existence for 36 months from September 2017. Um, and there's um, a whole bunch of complexities and challenges that are associated with all of that. 
uh, which can be really fascinating, I think, as an attorney. Uh, of course, there's a substantive work. Uh, we are uh, digging in deeply to proposals uh, concerning all kinds of different things, uh, preparing legislation, exploring constitutional issues, which is not something that you always do, uh, even in the government. Um, and I think that's very interesting. I've got one of one of my members of my legal team over there, Sam Moss, who um, hopefully is, has been enjoying his time so far. And then there's the deliberative aspect of this type of work, which is working very closely not only with the staff but also with the commissioners and trying to help them, um, trying to help them reach consensus on different ideas. Um, and that's enormously rewarding. Um, I, I noticed in the past couple of years there seems to be an uptick in Congress creating these sorts of commissions. There's one starting up right now on military aviation safety. There's another one on artificial intelligence. Um, and I think Congress sees these as a useful way to um, essentially create a government think tank that can uh, operate somewhat out of the spotlight, right, out, as distinguished from a federal advisory committee. You can do some work um, uh, under the deliberative privilege, and you come back to Congress, you come back to the president with a series of recommendations, with legislation, um, that hopefully will be bipartisan in nature, just by virtue of the way these commissions are structured. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of these in the future, and I think it's, it's definitely uh, been a rewarding experience so far, and it's something that um, you should be open to. Thank you. Great, thank you. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. To hear the full audio, including the Q&A session from this event, visit us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. You can also find information about upcoming events on that site. You can always drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or on Twitter at ABA NatSec. We welcome your feedback. As always, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.